Welcome uh, to our in-person service. Welcome home church and people streaming in from home. Um, we are uh, done with our series on the book of 1 Thessalonians. We wrapped that up last week. And we are now moving, we're actually joining with the global church uh, every year on the church calendar as we begin what's known as Holy Week. This is the culmination of Lent. If you grew up in that tradition, um, we, are, we are moving into the final week of Jesus' life. And the church, just like at Christmas, pauses for a season to remember uh, potentially the, the most significant week in human history. Um, and what was just read is the beginning of that week, Palm Sunday, as it's been known. Um, Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey with palm branches, palm fronds being laid down on the streets in front of him as he enters Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. But only Jesus knows at this point. What we just read, now we know because we know the story, but if we can kind of use our imaginations to get into the story, only Jesus knows at this point that he will not leave Jerusalem uh, without dying first. Only, only Jesus knows that five days from this Sunday that we just read, Palm Sunday, uh, will he be hanging on a cross uh, by Friday. And so as a little bit of context for, for what we just read, we're going to kind of dive into the passage and kind of try to get a sense of what's going on and the reactions and the expectations of what is playing out in front of us as the readers. Um, but we, we have to do a little bit of a, a, a whole uh, Old Testament um, and, and try to see what, what's what scene is being set right here for us as Jesus enters Jerusalem? Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's his seventh miracle in the book of John, kind of this culminating miracle. And it's this crescendo uh, sign and wonder of Jesus that says Jesus has power even over death. And so we're told in this passage, the crowds have come out just like you would. If word spread through 12 South that someone had just raised someone from the dead and they were going to be walking through Severe Park, you would go down there. You would, you would want to see what's going on and you would be able to, to get a, a little bit of a glimpse into their, the expectations for what Jesus is and who they think he is, is mounting. And he's gaining all this social and political uh, popularity. The people want him to be something and the Pharisees can see it happening and they're angry about it because he's ruining their system. And so coming out in this John 12 triumphal entry, we're trying to get a sense, we're trying to see with fresh eyes What's going on in this scene, and it's this, is that there's these two camps. The crowds and the disciples, they gather to welcome their king into Jerusalem. And then there's this other camp of the Pharisees who had this cultural power and this, this religious hierarchy where they were in charge. And they're seeing this king gain in popularity, and they are not happy about it. And so all of that is happening as we read this story. The, the, the crowds wanted the Romans out. The crowds wanted a new political reality. They wanted a new nationalistic reality than the one they had, the Roman oppressive rule, Herod and Pilate. And we need, to, we need our homeland back. We need our country back. We need to be restored as Israel in the promised land. So they wanted, they wanted Rome out and the Pharisees want Jesus out. And all that is mounting, all that is building as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey. So these two groups, as they are seeing what is happening to Jesus, are happening because of Jesus entering Jerusalem, that's, that's the lens we're trying to see. So read with me again, verse 13 through 15. And remember, we've got all this underlying, mounting pressure, mounting expectation for what is happening and what people like and don't like about Jesus. So verse 13 starts this way. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, so in this short little passage, there are two Old Testament quotes, two quotes from, taken literally verbatim from the Old Testament and inserted here. One of them is a, a song, a psalm that the people were singing out loud as they're laying down the palm branches, and the other is a prophecy talking about the coming messianic king, the coming Messiah. And so all this is coming together, all the symbolism, all the hopes, all the expectations is coming together. There are hundreds of messianic hopes, hundreds of passages that speak about when Israel's king comes, this is what he's gonna do. When our great son of David comes and sits on the throne again, this is what it's gonna be like. And the people are, are bursting with this expectation, this hope of it's finally happening. Our, did you see our guy? Our guy just defeated death. He just raised Lazarus from the dead. If, if he can raise Lazarus from the dead, certainly he can overthrow Caesar, overthrow Herod. He can overthrow the Roman rule. We are gonna be set free. And the Pharisees are seeing The people think this is the Messiah and they are not happy about it. And so all of this Old Testament um, weight, all this Old Testament messianic hope is is literally unfolding before the reader as the people are watching their king ride into Jerusalem. The palm branches were a symbol of military victory. They were certainly also part of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a huge feast for like a yearly celebration for the people. They used palm branches to build these tabernacles, miniature tabernacles. But the the palm branches became almost this like nationalist symbol, almost this like uh, this, you represent everything about that we want our country to be. And so 200 years before Jesus, during what's known in history as the Maccabean Revolt. Simon the Maccabee, you can read about it in the book of Maccabees. It's an intertestimonial book. But it, it literally, like, he, he runs off this Syrian uh, army, and in his victory parade coming home, the people are throwing down palm branches. You defeated our enemies. You threw off our oppressor. And so we're celebrating you. It's like rolling out the red carpet for, for the, the celebrity king who just won the war. And then that quote that they sing, they sing Hosanna, which is a term that we just sang, which means save us, rescue us. And then it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a direct quote from Psalm 118. If you read all of Psalm 118, which we can imply they were probably singing the whole psalm. They didn't just sing one line and repeat it. Uh, They sang the whole psalm. It's a psalm all about that the king of Israel will come and he'll defeat all the nations and the enemies that oppress Israel. He'll come and he'll restore and he he will do the work of a victorious king. And even the donkey, the donkey's referenced in that second quote, which is from Zechariah 9, and it says that Jesus went and got a donkey. Even the donkey, donkey was a symbol of a victorious king. Because guess what? Kings rode on donkeys when there was no war to fight. They rode on, you know, steeds, war, war steeds of, of mighty horses when it was time to fight a war. They rode on donkeys when there was no war to fight. I'm so at peace from the victory I just won, the king would say, I can ride on a donkey. I don't even have to, I don't even need an escape. I don't need to be fighting. I've just won a war. And so all this is coming together. The palm branches, Psalm 118, he's gonna defeat our enemies. Hosanna, save us. And then Jesus, their guy, their dude, rides it on a donkey. Look at our king. He's so sure about the victory that he's about to have. He's already riding it on a donkey. 
He's already sure about the defeat of Pilate and Caesar and, and Herod. He's going to overthrow this Roman oppression. And we're not even afraid of it. He just defeated death. I think he can handle Caesar. So we're good. Get this guy to the throne. Get this guy in the, in the, in the castle. Get him to his, his throne seat. This is our king and he will be victorious. All of it coming together with this messianic weight of the victorious king riding in in the parade, riding in on a donkey, you are our victorious king. And then when you throw in the fact that we're told in the first verse of this passage, verse 12, that it's Passover week, literally millions of Israelites from all over the world would have descended on Jerusalem in this week. And so you don't just have like, you know, a couple hundred folks throwing down palm fronds. You don't just have a couple hundred folks like excited about this possible messianic hope. You've got the, the rumor mill starting. You've got the word spreading. This guy, Jesus, this rabbi Jesus who taught and does miracles, he's even more powerful than death. And now he's riding it on a donkey. Are you kidding me? This is our dude. And there's millions of people that think it. The whole, that's what they say. That's what the Pharisees say. Look, the whole nation has gone after him. Like everybody wants this dude to be their king. Everybody believes this is the Messiah. We got problems, people. And so all that sets the table as we understand a little bit about what's going on with these two groups with two different expectations for what they wish Jesus would do or not do based on how they're interpreting all the pieces of the story that are coming together. Two groups. Everybody thinks that this is the king who's come to restore Israel, and the whole nation thinks so, that he's the king that's going to politically and nationally restore Israel. But think about it in this paradigm. Think about it with these two views of Jesus. You've got the group of the crowds and the disciples, the followers of Jesus, and they want Jesus to change everything. Jesus You are here to change our circumstances. You are here to change our reality. You are here to overthrow the oppressor. You are here to make our lives restored in the way that we want it restored. Jesus, you're our king, change everything. And then you've got this other camp over here of the Pharisees and the religious leaders who had all this cultural power in the religious hierarchy and they they had their own system and everything was good. They wanted Jesus to change nothing. So you've got the Jesus change everything camp and the Jesus change nothing camp. And both of them are seeing this triumphal entry happen, this king riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and they both got ideas about what's happening. One camp wants what they want changed, and one group wants Jesus to stop changing anything. You ever put those expectations on Jesus? Jesus, I need you to change some things about my life. I need you to find me a spouse. I need you to find me a different spouse. I need you to change the spouse that I have. I need you to fix my kids. I need you to fix my bank account. I need you to fix my sense of self. I need you to psychologically make me feel okay with me. I need a a sense of confidence. I I need a different life than I have right now. And Jesus, don't you want those things for me? Why won't you just do what I want you to do for my life? You're riding into Jerusalem. You're my king. This sounds great. Can't you just do what I want you to do for me? And you got this other experience where we would go, Jesus, I'm kind of tired of you changing things. I've been through enough pain. I've been through enough loss. I kind of have my systems of control. I kind of have what I like to expect from you. And I, I think I'm good if you would just stop changing so much. Like, I know you're the king right in Jerusalem, but I, that's not okay with me that you just feel the freedom to, to bring in more pain, to bring in more frustration, to, to bring in more anxiety. Like, I, I'm kind of sick of the change. 
And so I think we can relate to, to both, both camps, this camp that wants Jesus to interrupt everything and this camp that wants Jesus to stop interrupting things. We can relate. So the question is, on that paradigm, on that spectrum, where do you spend most of your time? We can both fall in both camps on any given week, but where do you, where do you spend most of your time? Where, what, what, what lane, what exit ramp do you tend to get off on, on your expectations of Jesus for your life? Where are the places that you want and expect Jesus to change your circumstances? And where are the places you want and expect Jesus to change nothing because you like the way things are or you expect that he shouldn't keep changing things on you? And, and however you answer those questions, whichever camp you tend to spend more time in, I want you to know that however you answer those questions will lead you to whatever is functionally the God of your life in that moment or in that season. Whatever you functionally worship in your life is found in how you answer that question. Like if you want Jesus to just change your spouse so that your life could be easier, then your God that you worship is your own ego and your own self-righteousness. Because you think they have so much more changing to do than you do. God, would you just change them? When I hear that from folks, and and, you know, guilty, takes one to know one, but the, the, the revelation of that is, is oh, you're your own God, and your view of yourself is your own God. If you want Jesus to never let your children suffer, and can't you just promise me, Jesus, that we can build a system and raise them perfectly and have all the systems and the guardrails in place, would you not let them experience too much shame and too much pain and too much loss? Then your God is your sense of control. Like, I, I just need you to promise me that if I build the system right, Jesus, if I keep all the rails on, then nothing's gonna surprise me. I won't experience any trauma. There won't be any sudden loss or sudden things I have to deal with. I don't wanna handle the pain of being or feeling out of control. Or if you want Jesus to change the things that you struggle with, then maybe the God that you worship is your own convenience and the God of ease. Like, I know that we all struggle, but God, I'm tired of struggling with this thing and so I just need you to take away this struggle. Whatever it is that I could go on. I'm not, I'm not trying to necessarily find everybody's right answer. I'm trying to get us all as we enter into, we're gonna talk about what's going on in this passage for us. I'm trying to get us all to be courageous and honest enough to admit that you have a view of Jesus. I don't care if you're an atheist, you have a view of Jesus and it's that he's not real. But you have a view of Jesus. Everybody in here has a view of Jesus. And with that view of Jesus comes expectations for what Jesus should or should not be doing. And, and again, the goal is not for you to act like you don't have expectations. And if, and if you could um, suddenly poof yourself into perfection that you wouldn't have these anymore. We're human. I'm trying to get us to come to the table and go, hey, just like the disciples and the crowds in the story and just like the Pharisees, we have a view of Jesus and we also, with our view of Jesus, have an expectation of him and an agenda for him. And the most painful part about being honest, about admitting my expectations for Jesus, my agenda that Jesus should be doing for me is painfully realizing that Jesus may have an agenda that's different than mine. 
It's oftentimes why we're afraid to admit about what our expectations and our agenda for Jesus may be because then I've got to deal with the fact that what if I say that out loud or I say that in prayer or I journal that or I say that to a friend? What if I admit that? Then I'm, I'm, I'm laying myself bare to realize when I've stated my expectation and my agenda for Jesus, what am I going to do if I have to then hear from Jesus or live through the experience of realizing his agenda for me is different than my agenda for him? this brutal tension between what I want Jesus to be doing or not doing and what he's actually doing and what he actually came to do. So go back, go back to the story. Go back to the story understanding that tension. Crowds and disciples have this expectation and agenda for Jesus. You're our victorious king. Pharisees have this expectation and agenda of Jesus. We need to kill this dude. He needs to stop changing some things. But go back in realizing that these two parties represent our two camps of how we can come to Jesus. And then deal with the reality, the reality of that moment. What was Jesus actually coming to do? What was he riding into Jerusalem? What was his agenda on Palm Sunday? The crowds, if you remember, were wanting to coronate him. They're saying, this is our king. Get this guy on the throne. Put him in a position of power. He needs to overthrow Caesar. He needs to kick out these Romans. He needs to get rid of Herod and Pilate and the system that is overthrowing us. We need our promised land back. Get this guy to his throne. And you can imagine it. Palm fronds, the things laying down, the donkey riding in. Everybody singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. They're saying, this is our king. Get him on his throne. And the irony of what is happening here, or the the, the, like the, us knowing the rest of the story, which irony is all over this passage. Like they cry out, Hosanna, save us. It's like they had no idea the depth of what they were crying out. But even, even just, just think about, they were trying to coronate their king and the irony of Jesus, who was and is the king, had a very different idea of what his coronation would look like. Jesus wasn't coming to be coronated as the one who would change the Roman rule and be the political king. Jesus had a coronation ceremony that ended with him hanging naked on crossbeams. That was his coronation plan, not this. The, the paradox, the irony of, of what we see playing out is that Palm Sunday is this unfolding of the people's idea of a coronation ceremony. And if you go back and read every single gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you read their story of getting Jesus to the cross, all of them in their own way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them have their own way of rolling out for the reader that Jesus himself had an idea of being coronated and it ended with him on a cross. Behold, Israel, this is your king naked on crossbeams, completely abandoned. It even says the phrase above his head, that was, it's so intentional, while he sits hanging, suffocating, dying, Jesus, King of the Jews. It was intentional, he's wearing a crown of thorns, intentional, he wears a royal purple robe as he's being blistered through the street. Behold your King. The king of Israel didn't come to sit on Caesar's throne, he came to be crucified. And every single gospel writer presents the road to the cross like a coronation ceremony. 
It's kind of unbelievable. We could do a deep dive on each gospel author's idea of the coronation. If you had several hours, we could do that. But it is, it is, it is profound, the parallels that the gospel writers make trying to help the reader see this is how this king was enthroned. That you want to know what the king of Israel is like? Go to Calvary. The cross is portrayed as the display of Christ's royal position. It's portrayed as the display of his majesty. And here's, here's what's crazy about it. That's how he wanted it. It's actually from his position of power, from his position of authority, from his kingship that he says, you know, you know kings dictate their own coronation ceremony, right? Like they decide how that's gonna go. That Jesus would say in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. This is how I wanna be enthroned. This is how I want the world to see what kind of king I am. He chooses to enthrone himself from his position of power, from his position of authority. He chooses to enthrone himself on a cross. And he chose to coronate himself that way because he knew what was most needed for his people was not an overthrow, but an atonement. He knew this is what my people actually need. Their oppressor is not Rome, it's sin. And the thing that is enslaving them, their real captor, is on the inside of them, not on the outside of them. They want me to come in and overthrow and change all their external circumstances. And I'm headed to a cross, I'm headed to my throne, because when I get to power, I will defeat their real enemy. And my path to power is dying for them, because that's what they really need. I don't need to go sit on Caesar's throne to save my people. I have to go sit on my throne, which looks like a cross. And when I get there, then they'll know I came to defeat their real enemy. And so if you pull that thread back to the story with the crowds and the Pharisees' expectations of Jesus, there were those that wanted him to change everything and there were those that wanted him to change nothing. And King Jesus would look at both of those camps that are alive in us and say, the thing I came to change is you. That's what I came to change. I didn't come to change all your circumstances and I certainly didn't come to change nothing. But the thing that is in his scope, the thing that, is on, that he's got laser beam focus on, is I came to change you. I know that these camps have agendas for me, but that's not my agenda for the world. So let me ask this question. When you read this story of the expectations that all the people had on him, when you, you understand that there's this camp that wanted him to change everything politically and nationally and socially, and this camp that wanted him to change nothing, and you compare that with what he's actually there to do, let me ask you this question. Is it possible, is it possible that what he was doing was better than what they wanted him to be doing? Is that, is that possible? Like, is it possible that it was better that he went to Calvary than he went to the palace? What's better, overthrowing Rome or defeating sin and death? What was better for the people, political freedom or making atonement for what they owed? What was better, sitting on Caesar's throne or hanging on a cross? And, and I know you know the right answer to that. They're rhetorical questions, but I'm not just talking about applying that understanding to the story in John chapter 12 of the triumphal entry. If that's true, is the same thing possible for what you want Jesus to do? Is it possible that what his agenda is for you is better than your agenda for him? Is that possible? 
Is it possible that whatever that sound is out there is going to go on the entire sermon? I don't know if home church can hear it, but they're, they're destroying the entire street outside, I think, with a jackhammer. Is it possible that Jesus' agenda for me is better than my agenda for him? Well, look at what we're told uh, by John, the author, in this. And I want to I look at this one verse for just a few minutes. We're going to kind of finish our, our, our study of this passage on this one verse. And I hope that it begins to reorient us as we bring our expectations and our agendas to Jesus. That this, 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 will, this could radically liberate us. It, it won't get rid of our expectations and our agendas. It could soften our grip and loosen um, our hearts as we, as we come to Jesus with those expectations. Look at verse 16. Can you throw verse 16 up again? Because we're going to study it for just a few minutes together. I don't know what slide it's on, but it, is it up there? We good? His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Okay, just that one line for a minute. Meaning, what John just told us is that the disciples who were present at the triumphal entry, they're laying down the palm fronds, they're singing the joyful song, they've got expectations of Jesus, Jesus, you're coming to do this. Then John tells us that months later, at least months later, maybe longer. It wasn't until way later that the disciples began to understand what was happening on Palm Sunday. Which means it's possible that while you're walking through something, you may not understand all that's going on and you may need a season or seasons removed from that experience before you may begin to understand what God was doing. Not in the present moment could they see all that Jesus was doing. They couldn't do it. They couldn't see it. It wasn't until later did they understand these things. They, because of their sin and their pain and their suffering and their story and their trauma and their expectations, because of all that coming into play in real time, they could not, they literally had something blinding them to seeing what the Lord was actually doing. None of the disciples are like clearing out the palm branches being laid down and be like, guys, you're wrong. This is wrong. He's got to go to the cross and y'all don't understand it. Let me, but he's given me wisdom perfectly right now in real time to be able to understand all that he's doing. No. It wasn't until after that they could look back and see, man, he was doing something different than what I wanted him to do. And I didn't get that understanding until later on. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever had that happen where you've walked through something that ripped your heart out or walked through something that causes all kinds of shame to even try to sit and talk about? Have you ever walked through grief and loss or something, major transitions, and you're in it? You have no idea why it's happening and you're trying to find the Lord and what are you doing? If you just show me why you're doing this and I'd be okay with it and if you just make it clear and all this stuff and then you go like months Maybe even years later you go, I'm starting to see what he was doing there. You couldn't see it in real time. You literally could not see it. It would not have been possible for you to understand it. That's what happened to the disciples here. And it doesn't mean that just because you can't make sense of what the Lord is doing in real time, it doesn't mean that just because you don't have an understanding of what he's doing while you're in it, it doesn't mean that he's not doing something. It doesn't mean that he's not up to something. It doesn't mean he's not working. It doesn't mean that he's not on mission to do something. Just like the disciples here on Palm Sunday. Jesus had his eyes on a cross. They had no idea. 
It's been said before that the Lord is always doing 10,000 things and we're lucky if we're aware of three of them. The Lord is always doing 10,000 things and we're lucky if we're aware of three of them. Isaiah 55, Old Testament prophet. Isaiah was a prophet. He got words and revelations from the Lord and he spoke to the people on behalf of the Lord. Isaiah 55, this is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, but my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so far above, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. Meaning, the Lord is always doing things, always working things, always orchestrating things, always providencing things, always upholding things, always creating things. So far above your ability to see it or understand it, he's so transcendent that he's saying the gap between your ability to understand the way that I think and the way that I work and the way that I'm navigating and bringing all this together, the gap, that distance is like the distance between the heavens and the earth, which doesn't have a mile marker on it. The point is that it's infinite. You're finite and he's infinite. And so he's saying that's the gap between how I think about things and how I rule and how I orchestrate and how I providence and how I'm making sense of this. And you are finite. So is it possible, is it possible that while the Lord is doing something in real time to you and through you and in you, you may not understand it. You may not get it. It's like Job. Job who was who went through unspeakable suffering and there's 30 or so chapters of him complaining and his friends giving bad advice and him being sad and angry and confused and he finally he says, God, you need to come answer for yourself. I got some questions for you. I want God on the dock and he needs to prove himself. Where do you think you have the right to treat me like this and take away my family and take away what I had in my farm and my animals and my money? Who do you think you are? And God shows up and literally, God doesn't answer a single question. And this is what God says to Job. I kind of love it because God uses sarcasm, which gives me freedom to do it too. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, Job. I must have forgotten. I forgot you were there when I created the world and spun the cosmos. Oh, that's right, you weren't there. So maybe you don't understand what I'm doing. Maybe you couldn't understand what I'm doing. Is it possible that the Lord is always doing 10,000 things and we're lucky if we're aware of three of them? It's what's going on on Palm Sunday. And I don't want it to just stay in Palm Sunday. Would, would you dare to apply that to you today? As you bring your expectations to Jesus, would you consider that this also may be true? That what you want Jesus to be riding into your, into your Jerusalem doing, what you want your king to do for you or not do for you, would it, is it possible that he is doing something, but what he is doing is far beyond your ability to see it or understand it in real time. That's what verse 16 just told us. They didn't understand it until way later. And it's not meant to shame us, it's meant to liberate us. You may not understand it, is that okay? That you may not be able to see it and see how all the roads connect and figure out how redemption will look for this and how is that wound gonna be healed and how is this strife gonna be resolved and how are we gonna get out of this thing and what about my addiction and what about my fears and what about my insecurities and what, how is this all gonna be okay? Is it possible that you don't have a way to understand what God's doing right now? But then to imagine like the disciples, like the Bible doesn't tell us when they had their powwow, when they, when they got together after Jesus 
what had left them and he had, he had crucified and died and ascended. It doesn't tell, verse 16 doesn't tell us where they were all sitting when they went, ah, that's what Palm Sunday was about. But you can imagine thinking in their minds how Palm Sunday was supposed to go for them, what they thought Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to do, and then way later when verse 16 says they began to understand these things, they would have gone, man, he's always doing 10,000 things and I may be aware of three of them, but how amazing that when I see the three of them, I realize, man, those are for me. Like the joy and the solace and the comfort and the relief of knowing the three things that you can see him doing in seasons after you walk through something, you go, man, he was working that for my good. He was doing that for me. That's what the disciples realized. They didn't understand these things at first, but later they did. He was working something out for them. He's working something out for us that they couldn't see and we couldn't see, but it's better than what they thought he was doing. But it gets better. Read with me verse 16 one more time and listen, listen for the key that unlocks the treasure chest. What the disciples saw and understood later that gave them the ability to see the past differently. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they began to understand. Then they remembered these things that had been written about him. When Jesus was glorified, then. Here's what John just told you. The disciples were looking at their past, but they had a new set of glasses. They had a new lens to put on. They had a new, it's like being at the eye doctor and they put the like, all right, is A or B clear? A or B, you know, one or two, one or two. I never feel like I get them right. I never, always feel like I'm screwing that up. But they, they, they were given this, this lens to see and a new lens came into focus, a new lens came down and they go, oh my gosh, it all makes sense now. I can see it clearly now. What was the thing that came into view that gave them the ability to begin to understand their past experiences with him? When Jesus was glorified. Let me tell you what that word means, when Jesus was glorified. It's the summary word in the New Testament for Jesus' suffering, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and ascension. It's like when they saw, okay, so he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Let's recount what, how that played out for the next week and then for the next 40 days after his resurrection where we then saw him ascend to the throne of his father's right hand. Okay, man, a lot happened in those days. A lot was going down that we couldn't see. But now, they pull that lens into focus as they're looking back at Palm Sunday and they go, Palm Sunday makes a lot of sense now. He was our king. He was coming to save us. He was coming to overthrow our oppressor. He was coming to deliver us from our enemies. And here's the point. We will only begin to understand what the Lord has been doing and is doing when we filter our experiences through his suffering and his glory. I have to be able to take what I'm currently walking in, the current details and the current circumstances of my life that he has ordained for me and is letting play out for me, and I will not be able to understand them if I don't filter my ability to try to understand them through his suffering and through his glory. Meaning, that when I filter my experience through the suffering of Jesus, here's what I begin to understand about my circumstances and about my story. 
It shows me that if Jesus is always doing 10,000 things and I can see three of them that are for me and my good, it also proves to me, convinces me, and anchors me that the rest of the 10,000 are also for me. Even if I never see him, even if I never understand him, I know that nothing happens to me that doesn't get filtered through what he's done for me. It shows me that the hands that hold and write my story are nail pierced and blood covered. It shows me that whatever he is doing, whatever he is doing in your life, whatever he is doing in your life, you also have the confidence that he is willing to spend the greatest resources of his kingdom for your sake. He's willing to leverage all he's got for your good. So you may not see the 9,997 other things that he's doing, but not one of them happens without thinking about how can I spin this and make this good for them? And the way that you know that is his suffering proves that to you. Look what he was willing to do for you. It shows me that though he may not be doing what I want him to do currently, all he does towards me and for me is for my good. If Isaiah 55 tells me that his thoughts are not my thoughts and so far, so high above the heavens are his thoughts above my thoughts. Listen to how Psalm 139 describes those thoughts. The, the, the transcendent, otherworldly, incomprehensible thoughts of the God who spun the cosmos and there's, there's literally tens of thousands of things that you will not understand, but listen to what Psalm 139 says about like the funnel of those thoughts. Like if all of the thoughts and actions and works of God are being poured into a funnel and they, they get squeezed out and they come into focus and they come and they drop in one direction. Listen to how Psalm 139 captures and funnels all of those other heavenly thoughts that we don't comprehend. How precious towards me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. How precious towards me are your thoughts. Same thoughts as Isaiah 55. Otherworldly, transcendent, can't be comprehended by finite minds. All of those thoughts, how vast is the sum of those thoughts that are towards me. That, that's what filtering my current reality through his suffering does for me. I may not understand all 10,000 thoughts, but it confirms that the thoughts that are higher than the heavens above my thoughts are towards me. They're geared towards me. They're considerate of me. They're directed to me. They're for me and my healing. So as we close in song, would you ponder not only your expectations of him, would you ponder the kind of king you're bringing your expectations to? And that he's the kind of king who rode into Jerusalem not to sit on a throne but to hang on a cross. And because of that, you can know what you're walking in right now with the expectations you have of him right now. All that he does for you is for you. All that he does to you, all that he is, is orchestrating in your life is filtered through his willingness to spend himself on you. It does not guarantee that you will fully understand all that is happening, but in your unknowing of those things, you will know him. Let's pray.
Jesus, guide us as we uh, sing. Um, Forgive us for our demands of you and even our demands to understand all that you're doing. Um, Humble us to the dust, but lift our eyes to the heavens. Bring us to our knees, um, but lift our faces to see yours, we pray. As we enter into a time of worship, would you um, free us from the need to understand everything and guide us into knowing you, we pray. In your name, amen.